Onyx Hunt is our go-to solution for anything mapping related, whether we're at the house or in the field. Whether we're using the tracking feature in order to kind of figure out exactly where we're going in and out of the woods, to also implementing the new cell camera feature where you can actually link your different cell cameras that you may have from different brands and be able to get all those photos sent directly through the Onyx app where you can actually see them on your maps and be able to go through all your photos right there in one place. You can use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout and save 20% on your Onyx Onyx membership. Onyx has been extremely helpful for us the last six years, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for you. So know where you stand with Onyx. I'm sure by now y'all have heard about the Vortex VIP warranty. It is a unlimited, unconditional lifetime warranty. Absolutely the best warranty in the business. So if you drop your binos out of a tree stand, if you run them over with your truck, whatever happens, you can send it into Vortex and they'll fix or replace it. That gives me peace of mind knowing that Vortex stands behind their products. So hey, head on over to Midway USA and use the promo code SOUTHERN to get a discount on any Vortex optics you order through Midway USA. If you use that code, you get a discount and it helps out the show. So head on over to MidwayUSA.com and check out some Vortex optics. Meadow Creek Mounts is your go-to mounting option for red dots on your turkey shotgun. And one of my favorite features about this mount is you don't have to drill and tap your shotgun in order to mount a red dot onto your shotgun. I personally have used this mount the last two seasons and it's worked extremely well for me. One thing I personally like about it is because it's so low onto the barrel when it mounts to the rib of your shotgun, it allows for a very natural head positioning when shouldering your gun. Also an advantage of using a red dot compared to maybe just a traditional bead on your shotgun is you get a much more clear view of the turkey and you're able to kind of see what else is around there and making sure you're perfectly on that bird. Now if you're interested in giving Meadow Creek Mounts a try you can go over to the website MeadowCreekMounts.com and use the code SOUTHERN at checkout to be able to save 10% on your order. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're very excited to bring you this one. Uh, we got a pretty interesting fella on here today. We're going to be talking about some very interesting subjects that have to do with scent and scenting capabilities and how you keep getting busted in the woods. Uh, today, we have on Mr. Tom Brownlee, who is a former national canine instructor and uh, retired, let's see if I get this right, retired anthrozoology adjunct, ad, adjunct I can't say that word, professor. Did I get that right, Tom? Hi. Yep. I'm from Alabama. I can't pronounce some of these words good. Jacob, how are you? <laughs> oh, doing well. Doing super well. I'm super excited to have this conversation, Tom, with you. Uh, just to give a quick shout out, uh, the reason why we're here today is because of our buddy Nick Adair from the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast. He did an episode with you this past spring about, a, I think the title is A Dog Knows Best, uh, just about a dog scenting capabilities. And I found it very fascinating, uh, not only with just with your knowledge, but also the research backing of the knowledge. And it's not just anecdotal of kind of what you've found in the past. Um, to exactly, you know, how environmental factors will affect scent and, and uh, scenting capabilities of, of animals, uh, and also just kind of a wide range of, you know, capabilities of a dog, uh, especially when you're canine background. Uh, but Tom, I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. And to kind of kick us off, 
I do just want to mention this just for the listeners. I want you to just kind of talk about how long you were in the kind of the, the canine instructing world, along with uh, teaching courses on uh, scenting and, and dog capabilities with their nose. Okay, I was in canine for 20 years, teaching at the college level. In fact, we, we taught, uh, uh, my specialty was advanced and specialized uh, dog training and the scientific aspects of it. I did that for 10 years uh, and canine at the same time. I traveled around the country uh, instructing canine officers on mainly uh, the scientific end of the olfactory things so they can use it uh, for court testimony. Oh, wow. So, well, let's kind of, you know, jump into this. I think there's going to be a lot of guys excited. I got to say this right at the beginning of the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, everybody, if you're listening to this episode. Andrew's normally supposed to say it at the beginning of the episode, but <laughs> I'll catch us here. Make sure you're subscribed and share this podcast with a buddy if you do enjoy it. Uh, Tom, this is a very fascinating subject. I've been waiting really three and a half years since we started the show to have somebody on like yourself that has the knowledge of, you know, scenting capabilities, uh, especially when it comes to not only dogs, but also how we can apply this to uh, potentially other species that, again, have a very powerful nose uh, when it comes to scenting. Um, maybe to kind of kick us off, can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe the difference between prey species and predator species on scenting capabilities and the difference between that to kind of set us uh, some groundwork to then dive into when we start talking environmental mm -hmm. factors? Yeah, let me, I'm going to kick it off with a definition for you because I use this a lot. VOCs, that is a volatile organic compound. That is what scents are composed of. Uh, now, the difference between predator and prey, basically speaking, there's a lot of difference, but basically predators are hardwired from birth to notice, I can't say key in on, but notice certain scents. Uh, humans are no different. We are hardwired to notice seven scents when we're born, believe it or not. But dogs, and what we consider predators, we don't know. They can't tell us. But as near as we can figure, it's hundreds that they will pick up on when they're little. They will uh, they notice it, right? They go to that scent, check it out. If they get some manner of reward out of the scent, it's in the memory banks. You know, if they check it out and nothing happens, it's not that simple. Uh, and a lot of the things, because they're predators, that they are hardwired to notice are from prey, from the passing of prey on the ground, on vegetation, from uh, wounded prey, epinephrine, uh, and things like that. So they notice that right away. And needless to say, if they follow a wounded animal and find it, they get a reward. So that's in their memory back. Now, prey animals are, I presume, we don't, I don't know that much about them other than the, the structure of the nasal anatomy. But I would presume they're hardwired to notice certain scents as well, but it won't have to do uh, necessarily with the same thing. They're not tracking down a bunch of brows and chasing it and killing it. So they will probably, I'm guessing here, they will probably notice the smell of budding brows. Go check it out. Give it a bite. Get a reward from it. And the same process happens, uh, in neurologically speaking. Uh, but they do not key in on the same things that a predator would because they don't live like that. The 
the other part of the difference, you know, the, I'll say this, the nasal structure is somewhat similar. And the way it works uh, from a neuroscience point of view is very similar. But if you look at the nares, which is the nostrils, on, say, the deer behind you and then on a dog, dog's nostrils are designed uh, to do a two-way street and actually disturb scent on the ground. So the molecules get kicked up and then they can suck it in. Deer don't need to do too much of that, so their nose isn't built the same way. Uh, <clears throat> but you know they will notice ground scent. Uh, they have, I'm sure you know, there, there's an apocrine gland between their hooves, and they will track each other, especially though in heat, nose to the ground just like a dog. They also have got to notice uh, ground disturbance, which we'll get into later. Disturbed vegetation, disturbed earth, they've got to notice that stuff. That's what keeps them alive. So that's the big difference is the stuff that they key in on and the way the nose actually works. You don't see a deer go into what we call a rapid sniff mode, but anybody that's been around even a pet dog knows what I mean when I say rapid sniff. I think to give people an idea of the kind of capabilities, like a good illustration of it, of a dog in this case, but also a deer, because uh, a deer is comparable. I mean, I think a deer has more, um, what is it, like olfactory receptors in its nose than a dog does. So I'd assume a well, deer can smell better. We call it an olfactory sensory neuron. The receptors is a is kind of a misnomer. But... Um, do you know how many olfactory sensory neurons are in a whitetail? No, but I bet Jacob could Google it real I, quick. Yeah, I think it's, I've heard like 300, 310, something like million. Um, okay. I, I'll, I'll look it All up right. real quick for us because uh, it, it's. Does that makes sense. A dog has 220 million. Okay. And if the deer had 300 million, I would not be surprised. Bears have 600 million. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but the, what I say, the receptors in this nomer. On the dendrites of each one of those olfactory sensory neurons, there's usually, what's it say? 297 million. Yep. Okay, so that's more than a dog, more than the basic dog. But on the dendrites, which are actually the things sticking up in the nasal passages to collect scent, there's a series of receptors on each dendrite. So you can have 297 million olfactory sensory neurons we don't know how many actual receptors. There could be hundreds on each one of them. So it's it pretty complicated. Uh, but, yeah, uh, good to know. So if the deer has that many, you know what their capabilities are. If you've hunted them, you know they get a whiff of you from half a mile away, and they're not. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, can you tell the example you gave Nick when uh, he was in your podcast about uh, basically, the, some of the drug dogs that you train and the extent where you, you'll take uh, some kind of drug, put it in like a plastic bag, put it in a jar like peanut butter sure. or something. Uh, can you go into that and, and just kind of talk about how that dog is able to find something that's, that's, that's just like mind-blowing, how concealed you guys try to make it right. and the dog still finds it? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Every dog I've trained, that's kind of part of their final exam. We'll take a gram of dope. Put it in a Ziploc bag. Put that in another Ziploc bag. Vacuum seal it. Put it inside of a quart of oil. Put it inside a vehicle, and the dog needs to indicate from the outside that it's there and go in and find it. 
I never had one that couldn't do it. Now, the actual breakdown of that, I know what the, the threshold of detection is for a dog. I don't know how many molecules are getting out of that dope. Uh, it has been said, although I don't have um, confirmation, this dog needs nine molecules of a given scent in order to recognize it. I don't have any idea how that works, but I do know dogs have been tested uh, in university research to detect down to 1.09 parts per trillion. You can't wrap your head around that. Okay. So there doesn't have to be too much. I do know how the molecular movement of dope takes place and how it gets out of that bottle. And I know how it gets out of the car because of the air movement inside the vehicles. We do a great deal of studying on that. But exactly how many molecules are getting through it, I don't know. But the other thing that, that makes me wonder and probably going to make you wonder too is we <clears throat> traditionally teach the dogs to give a full-blown indication on one gram or more of dope because that is prosecutable in all venues. And if you put less than a gram in that oil bottle, they don't indicate. They'll alert to it, but they won't indicate to it. I wish I really knew how that happened. <laughs> the truth. So, but that's what they're capable of. And if the deer has got more olfactory sensory neurons, they're capable of the same kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So the, I think the question that's probably just like popping into a lot of people's minds after that example, which I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just got to get your opinion on, I'm sure you've seen in the hunting world, all the oh. scent control products, all the scent suits, the, the sprays, all that stuff. What's, what's your opinion on those things? Okay. If you're trying to hide your human scent, you cannot do it. As long as you're breathing, you can't do it. Uh, you can dumb it down and in on occasion you can get away with something, but just, you know, I don't know how a deer would differ, but we, when all that stuff came out, scent lock clothing and, and the scent sprays and all that stuff, we literally, we, we bagged dope up and rolled it up in, in scent proof clothing. The dog hit it like the clothing wasn't there. So you have to expect the same out of the deer. The only thing that I have found that may have some merit and I haven't really put it to the test is the ozone generators. If you know how ozone works, uh, it's, it's O3 and it generates O3 out there. O3 is unstable as hell. So one of those atoms of oxygen breaks off and becomes a free radical. It will attach itself to the nearest thing it can which could be the smell of you. So if you are, for instance, uh, if the chemical formula, what you're putting off is H2NO4, it becomes H2NO5. It's a completely different compound. It smells completely different. So it's not hiding your scent. It's changing it. Okay. That's all I can tell you on that. Uh, that that's the only thing that makes any sense at all. And I'm not a real true believer in that because it just can't cover up all the stuff coming off of you. Uh, but if it covers up the important part uh, and the, the scent sprays and, and all of that stuff, or I can see using lures, you know, the lure scents, uh, 
for reasons we'll probably get into later, but you're not going to cover human scent as long as you're breathing. You can't believe how much comes out in your breath. If you notice, we'll go back to dogs, for instance. Anytime you meet a dog, any dog, one of the first things they want to do is get in your face. And the reason is they want to smell your breath. That tells them everything they need to know. You know, are you, are you well? Are you sick? Are you crazy? Are you scared? Tells them all of that in an instant. And that's why they want to get in your face. So uh, that's where I'm at with that. But, uh, yeah, the, the sense, no, your only sure bet is to stay downwind. So we're talking about stuff that kind of eliminates your scent. But what about the whole idea of kind of overloading your scent with other stuff? Like a lot of guys in the deer world, they'll use all manner of cover scents from like raccoon pee to vanilla extract, all kinds of stuff in an effort. Yeah, turpentine in order to cover, mask your scent or just put so much scent out there that it's harder for them to detect you. Uh, What's your opinion on that and the validity of that kind of thing? I would have to know a little bit more about the olfactory sensory neurons in a deer. I know in a dog, all you can do, you can't mask a scent. Uh, And bear this in mind, that stands for deer too. You cannot mask a scent. Molecules do not bond with other molecules. Bonding takes place on the atomic level. So when you put turpentine on yourself, the deer is going to smell you, and it's going to smell turpentine. It smells the two different things, period. However, uh, like I said, depending on how their, their neurons are built, with a dog, if you overwhelm them, uh, the neurons will, the nasal epithelium that covers the neurons will swell and cover it to create protection from damage. So if you have something caustic, like turpentine might be it. It could cause that deer's nose, his nasal epithelium to swell. And what happens is he's not smelling turpentine. He's not smelling anything at that point. You have just, you know, just created a block to all smells. Uh, but we don't know what causes that in deer. We do know what causes it in dogs. But they're going in. It's a, it's a real sensitive thing. I'm sure deer have a, a protective measure, too, in their epithelium. But... Uh, can't tell you exactly what sets it off. Tom, I, I bet a bunch of guys are about to go out and buy some turpentine, man. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's a guy we're going to actually interview from uh, from South Carolina, probably this coming year, and he's he, he's not. It's not like the turpentine you buy like at a home, like a hardware store, which is like paint thinner. It's like a medical grade turpentine that smells like pine. I mean, that's the way he describes it, and he yeah. he swears yeah. by it. But you know, everybody uses all kinds of crap. You know, all kinds not crap, but all kinds of different things that you know they swear by, and whatever makes you hunt with confidence, do you? But Tom, I've got to ask you. We I think we have to talk about this to give an idea to listeners of how the nose of like a dog, but also potentially how a deer works too, because the structure is similar of how the nose structure works when it comes to bringing scent in and how they differentiate that those scent molecules once they breathe in and how it kind of works through that nose system. Like I said, the nasal structure uh, of a deer or elk and that is similar. In that, you, we're about to get into a real can of worms here. But as the air goes in, when a deer takes it in, it will go through what we call turbinates, which are a skull-like bone structure covered with nasal epithelium that has the olfactory sensory neurons in it. doesn't have that many, but it's got some. Uh, from there, it goes into the ethmoturbinates. Same kind of a deal, except there's more surface area to them. They're more compact, more surface area, more, a bunch more 
olfactory sensory neurons. And it has been theorized, we haven't proven it yet, that uh, those things are set up when the air comes in and goes through the turbinates, they will take it in at what we call a laminar flow. You have to, like, we're getting into gas dynamics here. It'll go into a laminar flow. Broke down real easy that, think about laminated wood. It's in layers. The heavier molecules would be at the bottom, next, next up to the lighter ones. And the ethmo turbinates is theorized, we, we haven't proved it yet, that they are set up to take those molecules like that. As they first come in, the heavy stuff on the bottom hits certain OSNs, the next step and on up, and that's how they decipher exactly what they have found. Uh, <clears throat> and I imagine the deer would work the same way. The, like I said, the nasal passages are very, very similar. And then right next to the back of the, t the ethmo turbinates are, uh, is the olfactory bulb. So I'm sure it's that case with deer as it is with dogs. In neuroscience, the sensory perception that they get, whether it's sight, sounds, whichever one is closest to the brain and has the fastest speed of transmission gets priority. So when the deer, this will explain to you why this is. A deer can hear you. You can make a mistake once in a while and get away with it if you hold still and be quiet. A deer can see you make a movement once in a while and you can get away with that. But if he smells you, you're done, period. And he doesn't need anything else to confirm it. So that's what's going on there. He just picked up something that he trusts more than his eyes and his ears. And it gets, like I said, quickest speed of transmission to his brain. So it's getting the cell smell of you, and it's going straight to the brain, going, get out of here. He doesn't care what happens with his eyes and his ears. He just leaves. So kind of going off with, like, the, the nose structure, um, I, I want to kind of get into talking how does, you know, these animals kind of use this when it comes to in the field? Like you talked about, like a lot of this is kind of just learned behavior based off, uh, you know, predatory instincts uh, for like dogs and everything kind of, you know, their instincts playing a part where they get a reward at the end. And that's how it kind of um, conditions them to how to, you know, follow up on certain things. And also if you think of a dog's nose structure, you know, the, the nasal passages on the front of the nose, they, I guess when they're putting their nose down, tracking something, they're facing directly to the ground where a deer is kind of off the side, side of their nose. Same thing with kind of like an elk. Um, but when it comes to scent dispersion, I, I want to talk about this from a hunter's standpoint. And again, how these animals are keying in on this. You've already talked about, you know, it's so difficult, if impossible to really mask or hide human odor because you're, you're you're expelling it through breathing and everything else um actually maybe before that what are some of the other factors of scent that can play a factor for say a hunter you know we talk about like you know you're you breathing you know in and out and all that kind of stuff what are some of those other things that again maybe could be like some high um expelling scent either glands or whatever on your body. What are some of those other things that maybe guys need to really start paying attention to when it comes to, you know, say if it's a criminal, some things that dogs are going to be keying on that, again, maybe a, a deer will as well? Well, yeah, deer should too. Uh, your sweat from your apocrine glands, those are the glands that where you have body hair, the stuff that smells to you even, that's a big deal. Um, your breath is a big deal. 
the I don't know about deer, but with dogs, we found the what we call personal scents, which the soap you used or the shampoo or the detergent doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, we used to think that was extremely important, and we found out it's not. Uh, it's the personal sense coming off of you. And the more you sweat, the more you're going to put out. And the more you, the harder you're going to breathe. So the more that goes out. One thing that we probably get into later if we have time, but as far as environmental sense go and something a hunter can use, the ground that you have just walked on is full of billions of bacteria waiting for scent molecules to come by. When you come by, it jumps on them right away. And let me say, I even made a note of this. When that bacterial stuff does happen and jumps on your scent, basically speaking, it, it consumes it. And uh, it happens fast. The so-called skin rafts, your, your epidermal cells that you shed that, that tracking people are real fond of bringing up, those are consumed within 10 minutes. 10.3 minutes to be precise, they cease to exist. The other molecules coming off of you will cease to exist once the bacteria gets hold of them in just about the same amount of time. Translate that real quick. Get to your stand half an hour before light. <laughs> so <clears throat> most of that stuff will have been destroyed by the bacteria. You'll have nothing left but the ground disturbance scent. The, the idea of, of ground disturbance, you know, you always hear about people talking about ground disturbance, walking in, you know, not wanting to touch anything, all that kind of stuff. But with that, can you talk about the bacteria aspect when it comes to, you know, what's happening when you step on a blade of grass, what's happening with the bacteria? When you're walking through an area, walking through dirt, mud, everything else, leaves, bacteria-wise, what's happening there? And what is, especially like in the dog standpoint, what are they picking up on that maybe, again, on the deer side, maybe they're kind of picking yeah, in on Yeah, deer's got to be noticing some of that stuff, too. Uh, what is happening, this is what we call environmental sense. Um, like I said, you have three types of things going on, three types of VOCs. If you remember me mentioning that earlier, uh, one is from prey. One is from prey actually disturbing the ground, whether it's a man walking in that a deer's going to notice or it's an elk going by that a wolf's going to notice. You have that. Uh, you have biogenic VOCs. Then you have bacterial VOC. The biogenic VOC is what you're getting at. When you crush a blade of grass, to tell you exactly, within uh, three point or point three seconds, uh, it will send out a wound signal. It leaks chloroplast, sends out a wound signal actually to other plants is what it's meant for. That will last between that three second mark, 0.3 seconds, up to a little over an hour, that signal left. Then there's a secondary biogenic signal that is a repair signal telling the other plants, believe it or not, in the area, immediate area, that they're starting to fix themselves. That goes, that starts at seven seconds, and it, it can go as long as 60 days. So you can, you can leave a mark where you walk for that long. Now, like I said, that's made for predators to key in on the passing of prey. The deer, you know they'll smell the ground. Like I said, they're, they're smelling for other, other deer's glands. Uh, they've got to notice that stuff too, and especially the biogenic signals. 
because they know you go get this kind of browser, this kind of grass, start munching on it. It's going to send off these signals. The other deer will know. I'm going to eat that kind of grass instead of this stuff over here. You know they've got to be noticing it. So <clears throat> when you're walking on it, it, it's best to not disturb it. The, the other downside, and I can't tell you if deer pay attention to this or not, uh, is the soil itself that contains all the bacteria that jumps on all these little scent molecules. It has billions of bacteria in the first two to four inches. And, and that stuff stays alive for a little while. Uh, whether or not they're picking up on that, I don't know. Dogs pick up on it big time. Uh, for instance, I thought of just talking to you. I was uh, hog dog hunting once with a guy that had catahoulas for bay dogs. And he was real good. Most hound men are not good with dogs, but this guy was superb. And we would stop. This is in Texas. This is at night. We would stop. 100 yards from a feeder and hit send the dogs. They would run around the feeder to see if there's any fresh tracks and then come back unless they hit a fresh track. Now, if you've ever seen that, the ground around those feeders is packed down by hundreds of hooves. How do the dogs know it's fresh? It's dry ground. That's how they know. They've just disturbed those microbes and that bacteria in the last few minutes, so they know it's fresh. I've got to think a deer notices the same thing. Don't know that for sure. Let's have research here. So let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. And we're talking about the scent that comes off of us, whether it be our, like the sweat, the breath, uh, whatever might be attached to our clothes, our hair. When we're walking through there, those, uh, I guess, organic scents coming off of us only last about 10 minutes. And then what's left is that ground disturbance that we've made walking through the woods. Yes, exactly. That is uh, your what we call a scent band when we're tracking your personal scent coming off of you leaves a band a visible well not visible but uh to a dog it is and uh and that will last for quite some time but again environmental factors like you talked about thermals and and the wind per se they'll move that band and disperse it pretty quick so if you're not right on it, but if you ever notice a dog is tracking anything, when they get closer to their target, they're, they're doing this, they're quartering, and what they're doing is hitting the edge of that band, come back into it, hit this edge. And as they get closer, that tightens up, goes a straight line that lasts 20 yards or so. So, uh, but that kind of thing, your personal scent band, this, the airborne stuff coming off of you, has got to be caught pretty quick that would be caught about the first 10 minutes a lot of times just when we're training tracking dogs because of the response time uh we'll vary that up we'll do it right away on a suspect that just run off or we'll let it age for 10 minutes or we'll let it age for two hours and then you will see the longer it ages the more nose to the ground goes on that's where a deer is going to be too so so that's what they're they're tracking like ground scent on an older track. That's that is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So if a deer is like, if he's busting you on your ground scent on your trail coming in, is he busting you on the fact that your foot is so large that you're making such a big ground disturbance in that one spot? I mean, I guess it's speculation, but uh, does that make sense? Yeah, you're you're crushing vegetation and, and microbes as you come in. If it's bare dirt, you're still crushing microbes in it, and they'll pick up on that.
Uh, it's that simple. So another thing for the hunter, as you're coming into your stand in the morning, do not cross what you know is a, is a deer trail. Come in from some direction where that doesn't happen. Just guessing there, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I have seen, you know, I've done exactly that. I've crossed deer trails because I didn't have a choice. Then I've still seen deer come down, but it was a matter of an hour, hour and a half later. So your guess is good as mine, but yeah, you are leaving a scent trail, whether or not a deer is going to pick up on it. We don't know because they're not a predator. A predator will pick up on it, but the deer is not going to hunt you down and try to find out, gee, where'd that smell come from? So I think you're safe. If you, the more time you can give it, the better. Yeah. Right. You've exposed yourself like that. All right, Tom, we got to nip this in the butt. Cause I, I just know there's some people thinking about, it, but I just want to put it out there. There's a lot of people in the hunting world that believe wearing rubber boots or even neoprene, which doesn't make a difference, but rubber boots is going to hide ground scent with you walking in. Can you just explain why no, that's not the case? Hide it at all. It just leaves less of your personal scent out there. You don't have your boot dressing from leather boots on there. You don't have leather soles. It just leaves less out there. But if you notice, and I always wondered about this too, because hunters love those rubber boots. You get a brand new pair of rubber boots and you can smell it. You know, a deer's got to be able to smell that, you know? So neither here nor there, but uh, I think it would leave less on the ground uh, of a human scent. It would leave, you know, you're still going to get those environmental scents stirred up, but I would imagine it leaves less of a human touch to it. So with but that human scent, just to clarify again, only lasts for about 10-ish minutes or so, correct? Yeah, basically. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. got you. Right. So, so I, I, that's the one thing. Like what Andrew just mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago about you know with your foot being uh, just a human's foot being so much larger than pretty much anything else out there, unless you're hunting with grizzly bears and crap. Which thankfully we don't have to worry about down here in Alabama. Now you in Montana, it's a little bit different story <laughs> depending on which region of Montana you're in. Um, but with that being such a large area that you're disturbing ground wise based off your boot size how maybe again an animal deer coming through it just you know keys in like there's a ton of disturbance right here compared to a a hoof of a deer which isn't that big and it's smaller than your hand um in most cases so that that's something i think that could again after the fact you hear so many guys like oh man a deer hit my you know entrance route you know an hour after daylight he blew or deer blew whatever and you know he smelt my ground scent or whatever you hear guys talk about that um, so I guess that might be part of the case is they're just picking up on some of those environmental factors, those VOCs, uh, after yeah. the fact and keen in all that's left basically at that, that point in time, but, uh, it would have some hunting bearing too. I've hunted in Canada quite a bit, I hunted bears and we so far back in the bush that they have literally never seen or smelled a human. And I had one track me one day and I watched him do it. It was fascinating because it was probably a half hour, 45 minutes after I had laid the track. And what a bear, mind you, has got twice the OSNs that a deer does. But if a, if a weed brushed against, I was on a path, and if a weed or a twig brushed against my pants, he stopped and he smelled it. It was fascinating to watch that deer. Like I said, they're twice as good at it as a dog. I would imagine he was more keen to doing that because he is a predator and he knew he was tracking something, a deer, maybe not. We don't know. 
So that, that brings well, up that, that brings up something pretty interesting uh, that our friend Michael Pike, who, who's usually on here with us, he's he's in a trip in Iowa right now, deer hunting. But last summer we ran a lot of trail cameras, and we were running cameras in these pine thickets where the deer like to bed. I mean, we're going right into where they like to bed and putting cameras out and leaving them all summer, trying to get some inventory. Well, last year, Michael was putting some cameras out in a spot, and he kind of cleared out this little area, and there were some limbs hanging down and some vines and stuff, and on that camera, he would have like a doe come in, and she would smell every limb that he touched, and then, you know, the next one would come in and smell it, and pretty soon, it was three months down the line, and the deer coming through there were still smelling those same limbs that he had touched three months earlier. So is that kind of similar to what you're talking about with the bear? Well... Three, yeah, it's similar, but in a whole lot longer period. And uh, three months is a long time. I could I could buy two months because, like I said, we know some of these scents uh, from the environmental disturbance will stick around for 60 days. And we know deer are capable of picking up on that. It's not going to smell like a human at that point. It's, it's, a, it's the disturbance of the vegetation and that whole chloroplast and biogenic thing going on. Maybe yeah, three months is hard to buy, but yeah. two isn't. Maybe you know, maybe I, it was two months. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. Let me let me ask you this because while we're talking about the environmental factors, because there's a lot here that before we, I kind of want to shift every tour we talk about. Oh, I can't talk before we get over to like thermals and, and wind currents and all that kind of stuff that happens uh, and scent dispersion, all that. But with the environmental aspects, I guess that now opens a, a door to something I didn't think about is. Going in as a whitetail hunter, coming from a whitetail hunter's perspective, maybe you're, you're trimming out a little shooting lane or something, or you're clipping some branches around your tree, and you're making all this you're disturbance. Yeah, that you don't even realize. Yep. You don't even. Most guys don't think of like the hunting disturbance, and maybe that's you know, guy. You hear guys talk about all the time. Oh, I don't shoot. I don't trim shooting lanes during hunting season. I wait till the postseason do it to let kind of cool off. And maybe it's not so much about the deer now seeing all there's limbs missing, but it's that smell that they're keying in on of all the disturbance of stuff being cut down. Yeah. Because you know yourself, if you cut enough limbs, you can smell it there again. You can smell it. So you know they can. Now, whether or not it really alarms them, I don't know. I've known guys that cut stuff, cut shooting lanes and that, sit in it and kill something that day. I don't know if there's a hard, set fast rule. But uh, did you take your chances? I would. I would think if you know where you're going to go, I'd cut the shooting lanes a couple months before season. You know, so. So, so with ground disturbance, is there anything else that we ought to touch on talking ground disturbance before we shift over? Because I want to talk about dispersion of scent as you walk in and how like thermals and everything can play a factor with some of that stuff along with you on stand. But is there anything else with ground uh, disturbance of kind of the walking in aspect or anything else that's notable before we kind of move on? Uh, a couple of things and we'll probably touch on it later. You probably had a, an idea to do this moisture. Uh, scent clings to moisture, uh, moisture, water per se is what we call a sticky molecule. It doesn't bond with scent, but it sticks to it and stays there a little bit longer than it would ordinarily. So if you go in on a dew morning or, or after a recent rain, your scent is going to be there for a little bit longer than it normally would uh, on the ground. And the other thing is, boy, just minimize the damage you do to vegetation and the amount of dirt and stuff you kick up um, because... They've got to notice, you know, deer make their own scrapes. 
to bring attention to the smell. If you're doing the same with your feet, that's not going to be good. So just things to pay attention. Just the little disturbance of anything that you can do, the better off you're going to be. And I guess so. that, br- that brings up just one last thing, just to kind of note on, just to kind of, you know, leave the listeners with this. Um, the whole idea of you walking in, if you like touch a branch or something with your arm or your hand or it brushed against your pants, like the human scent probably is only going to stick around for about 10 minutes or so. Then it's going to, you know, kind of disperse. But the the environmental right. sense, they get the biggest factor while you're kind of walking is that environmental scent for the, the long haul while you're actually hunting that spot. Yeah. They're going to be, they're going to be hanging around significantly longer than your scent is. All right. So then we'll get into dispersion, you know, and that, that happens in a number of ways, but you, you can ask me what, what questions you wanted to answer. Yeah, so I think that the next one, before we get to scent dispersion, you, you brought it up, so it's just worth noting, moisture versus, like, mo- like moist conditions versus dry conditions and how that affects scent, the scent travel, the, 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 the what, how long it's going to stay in the environment. Let's touch on that just a little bit more, especially when it comes to, like, the moisture levels. Um, and then also, if you had, like, a really dry period, again, how that might, you know, hurt scenting capabilities. Okay. The, yeah, moisture will have scent cling to it. Uh, vegetation, per se, will have scent cling to it. Uh, if, you have, if you think about vegetation, it has photosynthesis. It has a surface that is designed to trap molecules, specifically CO2. So that will keep it uh, in an area a little bit longer, the more vegetation there. But the moisture does it, and there's a lot of factors actually, but it always clings to vegetation, it always clings to uh, moisture, and the way it travels since when it's gonna disperse, we'll get into whatever, you need to ask whatever pointed question you want there, because there's lot of funny things it does uh good you know just to, for instance to kick it off i mentioned your scent band when you walk through and your your scent molecules are hanging in the air if the wind is blowing that scent band moves 10 feet for every one mile an hour wind okay so you can be you can see what dogs i said again the wind is going to dissipate this stuff in pretty short order but until then it's there so I will intentionally, when we're training tracking dogs, I will lay a trail that you can see with a crosswind, measure the velocity, and then turn the, tell the student, turn the dog loose. And a, a graphic example was soccer field, brand new coat of snow, one set of tracks across it, eight mile an hour wind. And the dog ran the track 80 feet off of the track, literally ran parallel the whole way. Uh, so, there again, the more time you can give it to dissipate your scent, the better. As Again, I will tell you, as time passes and the scent dissipates, you get the animal more and more nose to the ground and less air scenting. When you think turkey calls, think of houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut 
on really hard, where on other situations, I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation. And hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP. 24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. Save space and cut weight with the Sawyer Mini Water Filtration System. This water filter fits in the palm of your hand and has a total field weight of just two ounces. I use this thing all the time. Basically, the way that it works is you get a drinking pouch. So it's literally just a little plastic pouch with a cap on it, like a water bottle cap that you fill up with water, and then you attach the filter to the front of that and squeeze the water through it into, you know, whatever you're holding your water in. Super fast, super easy, super serious filter, filtering out all bacteria, protozoa, and microplastics, so you don't have to worry about salmonella, E. coli, or stuff like Giardia. This saves me a ton of weight, whether I'm doing a long scouting trip or, you know, hunting all day. I get to carry less water with me, taking up less room in my pack, and then when I come to a nice stream, filter out some water, and I'm good to go. Head on over to Sawyer.com to check it out or hit the link in the description of this podcast. You know, we've had a, a legendary outdoor store here in Birmingham called Mark's Outdoors for the last 40 years. Family owned and operated, absolutely a staple in the hunting community here. And we're excited to announce that they have gone national with their e-commerce. So no matter where you're at, you can go get access to all the awesome gear and awesome deals at MarksOutdoors.com. We got a link in the description for them. They've actually got some of our favorite ammo. They have a Excellent ammo selection, excellent knife selection, excellent firearm selection. Y'all can go check them out. You won't be disappointed. Everything you need from apparel, archery, firearms, ammo, reloading, gun cleaning, and fishing. They have an unbelievable fishing department. And hey, if you are local or if you're passing through Birmingham, drop on into Mark's Outdoors. Head on over to the bow counter to Mark and Robbie and tell them that we sent you. Once again, that's MarksOutdoors.com, or you can go hit the link in the description of this podcast to check them out. So that's probably one of the things that we're the most excited to talk about when it comes to this is is the scent dissipation, how wind thermals affect your scent, um, and just anything that has to do with that because it's really fascinating. And when you said that on Nick's podcast about the the ten feet for every one mile per hour of wind, that really caught my attention because I mean that's that's quite interesting and you can get into a lot with that. And so to I guess kind of like to to kind of further explain it, I guess. So it's like, for instance, you could go walking right smack down the middle of a road down the center line and have a wind hitting you in the cheek. And if you brought a dog in there a little bit later to track you, that dog might track you off the shoulder of the road where your scent hit some grass, right? And, and that's where that scent yeah. trail is. It's not walking your exact yeah. track, but it's over there where the scent got blown to. Yep, they will do exactly that. And what I'm thinking in terms of the hunting, same deal. If you give it enough time to get dissipated, it doesn't matter. If you go into your stand five minutes before you expect to see a deer and he comes in where your scent band is now, you're toast. You know, so just pay attention to that. And the, the other thing you mentioned, the, the thermals and the, all of that, they go with the the wind. Basically, they'll they'll move scent as much as that. And when you're sitting there, you are putting off scent, of course. And I'm sure you've heard the term of scent cone. It's cone shaped from you. You are the, the point of that cone. And as it goes out, it spreads uh, more and more and more. And that's going to be your downwind side. So, of course, you situate yourself so that's not blowing over your target area. But uh, other things that will affect that, 
the thermals, like I said, they'll they'll do the same thing as wind per se because they are wind. Another thing is a hill. If you're on hills, your scent will roll downhill uh, at the rate of 14 feet per one degree of declination. Okay, so if there isn't any wind blowing your scent around, that's what's going to happen to it if you're on a hill. It's going to roll to the bottom. Uh, so that's something else to think about. Your scent band will be, like I said, it'll be 14 feet away for every one degree. So again, if you're going parallel to the top of the hill and it's a two-degree grade, your scent band's going to be 28 feet below you. If your deer hits it, you're toast. You know, so... We, I think we. I gotta ask you Go this. There, there's so much here. There is. This is like meat and potatoes. Oh, listen, we're we're 45 minutes in, and this is the meat and potatoes uh, of this conversation. I believe is uh, again the scent dispersion, and you know from talking the the wind scent dispersion versus again elevation and kind of the dropping uh, of scent. I want to bring us back. We're gonna get to the elevation, talking about 14 feet per one degree uh, of kind of elevation change. Um, but back to the, the talking like with the uh, the crosswind and everything. When you're talking. Uh-huh. For every one mile per hour, that scent's going to move ten feet. Is it going to move that ten feet inside that ten minute period, or what? What's the time yeah, frame it's going to move? It's going to move it pretty much right away, but it's within the ten minutes easily. Uh, so that's going to be dispersed pretty much. I've aged tracks ten minutes, and and you get mostly a uh, head down deal with that. You put a dog on a fresh track with the scent band still in the air you'll see them run head up. So it does not take long at all, and it does not take much wind to dissipate. Uh, and needless to say, the farther away it gets from you and where you laid that track, the more it dissipates. Uh, so if you have a good deal of wind, you can work it once in a while and get away with it. You know, I, uh, thinking of hunting things, I shot a caribou up in Alaska that I spotted from about maybe 800 yards away. And the only way to get to him, the wind was blowing. If I went where I need to go, the wind's going to blow right to him. However, the wind's going about 25 miles an hour. And I'm, you know, half a mile from him, so I figured I'll chance it. And I ran across the wind as fast as I could, and I got away with it. You know, if you have less wind and a closer piece of game, not going to get away with it. So you just kind of have to play it for what it's worth. You get in situations like that once in a while where you don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. So you hope for the best, you know. Well, one one thing that I'm just super curious on is the aspect of, again, how that scent shifts. Uh, I actually, we had a, we've talked about this on the podcast a few times. I went to uh, actually Nick Adair from the Gundog Yourself podcast. Uh, he had this big training event up in North Carolina and had a bunch of different handlers from across the country come down for that, you know, gun dogs. But there was somebody there that specialized in uh, search and rescue. And she was on the international, whatever, search and rescue team, whatever. And she had a Dutch, a Dutch Shepherd. And she'd been doing it for 25 years, gone all around the world and, and done training and stuff. And anyways, this Dutch Shepherd, so she's like, Jacob, because I was super fascinated with it. Okay, super fascinated with this dog. And she's like, Jacob, like we were eating lunch. She's like, hey, let me keep your napkin. You go get lost, like go run out in the woods, whatever, try to get lost. And I'm going to put my dog on you in like 15 minutes and let's see what happens. And she did that. And it was a pretty good crosswind. And I tried to J-hook. I tried to run down this field. Like the dog couldn't see me. The dog wasn't even paying attention. Go way down this field, J-hook back into the timber and come back. And I did that. And that dog did not care. So it was a crosswind blowing towards me. I was like on the downwind side, but it hit that scent so quickly. 
kind of head up, kind of bobbing and weaving. And it got to a certain point when, like, that J-hook, I guess it all just came together, all that scent came together, and it just ran right through that J-hook and ran right yep. to me. Straight line. Um, yep. it, it was fascinating. And I was like, holy crap. So yeah, like, we will, uh, I love Dutch Shepherds, by the way. When I'm training, I will intentionally lay J-hooks for, well, I've done a bunch of anti-poaching dog stuff for Africa, and, uh, and then, of course, police canine. Because somebody's going to do a J-hook, double back, and ambush you. You need to know how to read the dog on a J-hook, whether it's upwind or downwind. You know, the bad guys, the poachers in Africa will always be downwind because they're hunting. They're hunters. They know what's tracking them. The bad guys up here, not necessarily. They don't think about that. So, But we always train a J-hook just for that reason. Dude, absolutely. They're, and I love that shepherds. But they are crazy. So, yeah, super high. Yeah, it was it was just super fascinating kind of seeing that. But it kind of gets us back to this point of she was telling me the difference of kind of this dog. And she was explaining to me like the, the different capabilities of, you know, kind of that first 10 minutes, roughly 10, 15 minutes. She was talking about it's kind of just sending the air like it's not having to put his head down. It's, it's truly smelling your scent. Mm-hmm. Then after that, it's hitting ground scent. And then, you know, the the winding capabilities with certain wind speeds, how it could like cert- she could cast it into a certain area catch a, a in wind, right. whatever it was trying to find, and then go directly into it, uh, which is kind of similar, which is kind of where we're going to get with scent dispersion on stand of uh, that scent cone. Right. And depending on how long you're on stand versus how fast the wind speed is and everything else, truly how far that deer could be by the time it's smelling you if it's going on a trail that's going downwind of you. So Right. And that, you know, along that, that same line, I've done search and rescue stuff too. And we will do uh, what we call an area search. Because when you, you come on a search and rescue incident, the area of operations will be cut into grids. And you'll be sent, you and your dog go work this grid. You and your dog, okay. You have no idea. You have no track. You have no idea where the lost person is. So we'll have somebody approach a patch of woods from a different direction, not where we can catch the wind, you know. And then take the dog in and tell him to work it. And the dog will, like a bird dog, they quarter back and forth until they hit that scent cone and bang, go right to it. Uh, and that's, that's an eye-opener because, like you said, just depends on the wind and what's going on, how far away they pick up on that. And I'm sure deer do the same because I've seen them spook from quite a distance. But, so one okay. thing that I'm extremely curious about, and especially – the instance we're talking about here uh, with the Dutch Shepherd, which was really fast, like to someone who like like me at the time, where I I didn't know what I know now about dogs, watching it track. I mean, its head was straight up in the air like this, scenting, and I'm like, it doesn't even look like it's tracking. I'm like, what is it doing? And it because I you think a track and you think they're on the ground, but anyways, um, that it was an eye opener in that I'm like, okay, well maybe scent just does not really act how I think it acts, and. One one thing I've been very very curious about is a lot of guys for like a wind indicator they'll they'll use like talcum powder or they'll use milkweed or some other very very light thing that'll float on the breeze uh, and you'll and you'll say okay my scent's going right there is that the case or does your scent act differently since I guess it's so much smaller and so much lighter than that object that you're dropping. Uh, it will act somewhat differently. It is going that direction for sure. 
what I would recommend if you want a quickie education is is go to YouTube and punch in Vortex Street. And it'll show you how your scent acts. Your scent comes off of you and that cone actually has swirls of scent going through it, depending on how the wind is blowing and how whether or not you're moving, blah, blah, blah. But it is going the way that dental floss or that uh, dandelion stuff is pointing. It's just going in a wider band. That stuff's going straight and yours is a cone. Okay? So, uh, but definitely, that's going that way. It doesn't double back into the wind. It's not capable. So... All right, so yes. th- this gets a uh, well. Also, just for clarification, you said Vortex Street or Street or, or <laughs> Street. Okay, Vortex uh, Street. Street. Okay, okay perfect. Okay. Awesome. All right, yeah. there we go. Andrew's gonna come. And that'll let you know pretty much how uh, scent flows off of an individual. It's interesting, and you'll see what I mean about the dog hitting the side of the of the uh, scent band, but. Because it is a cone, you got to, like I said, you got to bear in mind, deer is going to do the same. But if they walk into it, they're not going to be back and forth looking for you. If they just hit the edge of that cone at any point and it sets them off, you're done. You know, you don't have a straight line looking at them where they're going to get your scent. It's wider and more dispersed. So now one. I've got I've got a I've got a question here that I this is from personal experience talking like sitting on stand with scent dispersion. We're going to get a little bit more into the thermal aspect and talk a little bit more kind of like the how uh, that scent will drop fourteen feet by uh, for every one degree of elevation yeah. change. Um, which actually, well, before we get to that, when it comes to the this sounds this might be weird to try to explain this the weight of the scent. Okay. You talk about the scent falling, you know, 14 feet for every one degree of elevation change. The density of that that scent molecule compared to whatever else is out there. um, One thing that's kind of eye-opening to me is, again, the idea of if you're hunting on the ground, less scent dispersion versus if you're up in the tree with more kind of that mid-canopy story. If you're in a tree stand uh, as a whitetail hunter and that mid-canopy story of all that wind currents and everything being on the ground and having a lower scent dispersion, would you say that would probably be accurate? I would say so because if you're up in a tree, in the canopy in particular, your scent is getting dispersed before it falls to the ground. But So you're setting out a wider cone by far if you're up in the tree. And it could be wide enough with enough wind that you can get away with some of it. So, yeah, definitely. And uh, when you talk about the thermals, you know how thermals work. When the, when the earth warms up in the morning, the convection current, air rises, hot air rises. The other thing I need to point out, too, let's see, is, I'll get that, but hot air rises. So that's where your scent's going. When the sun comes up and the ground gets warm, it's going up before it goes anyplace else. And in the evening, it's just the opposite. Thermals fall down. So if you're on a hill, if you're not on a hill, doesn't matter. You're sent down to the ground, it goes uh, in the evening. So like I said, here where we're hunting mountainous country, we have to work with that constantly. You know, you have to make sure you're not at the bottom of the hill at 10 in the morning or they're going to smell you because they're bedded up on the, at the top and vice versa. You need to be at the top in the evening. So. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention to you with scent and the flow and the, and the way it moves and disperses, scent molecules, any molecules, you got to go back to ninth grade uh, chemistry, 
the things that affect molecular movement are heat and pressure. So when it's hot outside, molecules move faster, it'll dissipate faster. Uh, likewise, they will gravitate toward any area of cool. They'll gravitate toward shade. Okay? Uh, this gets pretty complex, but if you just remember the basics, they will gravitate toward shade. Any place it's cool, the surface of water, shade, you sent molecules will gravitate there. So and bear that in mind. And when it's hot, they dissipate faster in a big, big way. So. That, that, right. That's exactly where I was going to go. You're, you're actually, man, you're, I'm going to say you're a little master segwayer, Tom, over here, just getting us right to the next topic, which is talking about temperature being a factor. And one thing I think you mentioned uh, on the podcast with Nick Adair, uh, with the Gundog Yourself podcast, was if a dog, if, if say like a prey species, whatever, you know, I'm talking canine here, went down, say like in a field and, you know, makes a little rise in the field and there's a crosswind. Well, that dog will probably be down in the shade on the timbered edge, picking up that scent too. Because not only with the crosswind, but also the falling, that kind of coolness of the air down there adjacent to the track is actually going to hold that scent much longer in kind of pooling uh, compared to up there in the middle where it's exposed in the sun and everything else. Yep. Absolutely. We actually train, uh, again, canine chasing bad guys. We will find an area where there's a field. And there's, you know, a patch of woods and hopefully an indent in the woods or even a break where a road goes through or whatnot and run a track across it and watch what the dog does. They will gravitate right to the edge of where that shade is or where that vegetation is. And uh, even though you laid the track out in the middle of the field. So you're exactly right in that, that estimation. That's, that is what's going to happen. Anytime there, we call a scent break. The other thing that's weird, because scent does roll downhill, uh, if we, we will also train this, we run a track right over the top of the hill, okay? So it's going up this side, going down the other side. When the dog gets to the top and it's bare, like it is out in a lot of this country, they'll get confused because the scent on this side has rolled back down, scent on the other side has rolled that way, and all of a sudden he doesn't know what to do. So we train the dogs. And so they know how to reacquire that scent because that happens if you're on top of a hill. Again, if you're hunting, you gotta bear that in mind. Your scent's going down both sides of that hill. If the wind isn't blowing it one way or the other, it's going down both sides. So, and as far as the weight of the molecules and whatnot, this, this again, we can't uh, quantify, but the molecules will stratify as they go out. So your scent has a bunch of different VOCs in it. The heavier ones will stratify towards the bottom. And you'll see a dog, if you run a track across the top of a hill, I mean, down the ridge line, the dog will be whatever, you know, 30 feet below, running parallel. He's on the, what the most salient scent is to him. It could be the CO2 that you breathed out. It could be you know, whatever comes out of your sweat, we don't know. A dog can't tell us, but he will be on the, uh, on the scent that's most salient, but the scent will, unless there's really a bunch of disturbance, the scent will stratify heavier molecules will go farther downhill. And they will also settle in, uh, undisturbed areas in the stratification deal. So, which is why dogs disturb scent when they're sniffing. 
so the, again, there's there's so much to this that is to me is just fascinating, um, especially talking about kind of the how the scent you know flows downhill. Uh, which I mean, if people that understand thermals, which we talk about thermals all the time on the podcast, kind of understand that aspect of it. But the the, the question I, I have for you too is even on a, if you have a a good rising thermal that totally neglects or, or, or stops that falling scent cone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You can't, yeah, you can't change that. That's going to happen. The wind has got a little more effect on it than, than just a downhill roll. Yeah, absolutely. Another in a shallow depression or any place that this would pertain to honey, any place where you've stopped for any period of time, scent will pool there okay now of course if it's in the shade if it's in a depression it'll pool and stay there for a lot longer so bear that in mind and, and again we train dogs on tracks we'll have the decoy intentionally stop at a certain point to see how the dog reacts to a scent pool because they don't just run right through it they stop they nose around until they find where it went out but the point i'm trying to make is the deer if you leave a scent pool, uh, deer doesn't care what where it came in and went out. He just cares that you were here and I need to go. So, so with the scent pool, this is something that I wanted to mention as well. Uh, a lot of listeners um, have heard us talk about thermal hubs, uh, which is or a high crow's foot or just a crow's foot in general, where you have three or four different drainages all coming together off a ridge point uh, or off secondary ridges. And at that bottom, that thermal hubs where all that sense pulling up at. And a buck, in a lot of situations, especially during the rut and everything else, especially in the evenings, will cruise that little bottom because he can smell everything up on top of all four of those ridges up above him. Um, and that pulling effect, of course, is how he uses that to go through, find where the hot dough is, go up to whichever secondary ridge point he's smelling it come from and then go from there. That also can affect you as a hunter if you're hunting one of those spots or hunting above one of those spots in the evening and he gets down below you, all that sense pulling in that one spot, and if he hits it, right. you're, you're done. You're done. Yeah. And that's with your, your thermals, because they're going to go down the hill to those spots in the evenings. So you need to be down there, not up on top looking for it. As a matter of fact, the biggest buck I ever killed was doing exactly that, in exactly that kind of situation. So you're spot on with that, I'm, I'm telling you. Now we got to talk about scent. I want to talk about scent now and scent dispersion in regards to topographical features, and especially when we're talking elevation change uh, and how you know with, with wind currents. Talking wind currents here can affect how that scent is then dispersed. Um, whether you're on the side side of a ridge, you're on the end of a ridge point, next to a saddle, off a bench, where you're down in elevation, but you have the back wall of the ridge still going up the ridge. Um, I mean, what, what is your, like your kind of knowledge base, which I'm sure you have plenty of it with kind of the wind currents, especially in places with elevation how those wind currents can kind of, you know, shift that scent, you know, maybe 45 degree angle or something off from the actual path of the wind current based off how it's deflecting off uh, the topographical feature or anything like that with the land. Yeah, it's going to follow the wind, you know, that's going to be your, like I said, your scent cone. And, uh, well, that's just really about all there is to it. If that, if there's something about the topography, just like I said, going over the top of a hill, it's going to go both ways. You know, if the wind is catching you a thermal going up in the morning, that's going with it in a big way. Um, there's not a whole lot I can think of that would 
you know, topographically that's going to affect it other than indentations and benches. Well, I don't think you guys have those where you're at, but uh, where scent will settle just a little bit before it moves along. And here are benches. You're going up a mountain, and then there's a flat spot, and then you're going up again. Well, of course, if it's coming down, it'll stop there for a little bit and then ooze over the side. You have to look at, like I mentioned, gas dynamics before. Uh, gases, are, for our purposes, are considered fluid. Uh, and if you think of them as fluids, a lot of this makes a whole lot more sense. Uh, look at, for instance, what, what I will tell folks, because we, we work inside looking for dope a lot. You spray the hose toward the wall and it hits down the floor. When it hits the wall, what happens? It goes both ways. Scent will do the same exact thing. And it does it in the outdoors, too. So if you think of it as a fluid, a lot of this, and after you've seen the Vortex Street thing, you'll start to catch on a little bit. But a lot of it makes sense. We got a, a lot of our information from the Gas Dynamics Lab in, at Penn State. So. so a question I have is earlier you mentioned something about uh, if the wind speed is high enough, like if you're in a tree stand, you might could get away with something where you, that your scent is being blown really fast, really far. Uh, is there some kind of, I got kind of a two part question. Is there some kind of critical mass to that where if you're, if the wind is above this mile per hour, um, you can, you could possibly get away with more or as the wind is blowing your scent across the land, how much of your scent is basically falling out of that wind? Um, it, do you get where okay. I'm going with that? We don't know, tell you point blank. Uh, but if you are in the elevated position, especially if you're in the canopy and you have wind, you have the wind and the vegetation that's downwind from you, breaking your scent up and dispersing it faster. Uh, and as far as when it starts to fall, basically is when the wind lets it fall. You know, that could be 100 yards away. It could be a mile away. So. There's no hard and fast rule on that. It's just the more dispersion you can get uh, from an elevated position, I would think, the better. And, it, you know, you've done it enough. It doesn't always happen. But when it does, I would call it a good thing because your scent is blowing above the ground, getting dispersed above the ground and away from you. So, but no hard and fast rules. Sorry. <laughs> So it's a good thing. So, it, I mean, it would be advantageous for you to set up where you have a lot of cover behind you that's going to just break up that scent and send it in all different directions and kind of disperse it so it's not so concentrated. Boy, it sure couldn't hurt. I never thought of it that way, but there's there's no way that could be a bad thing. You know, if you have some vegetation to break it up as it goes. Plus, you know, like I said, the, the scent will cling to vegetation for a little while before the wind blows it off which makes it basically disperse more evenly over time. So, yeah, there's no downside to that idea at all. And also, I guess it kind of goes back to, you know, any of our, a lot of our Southern listeners probably know about this, but down in the deep South, we have a lot of these, uh, you know, loblolly pines and longleaf pines. And, you know, a lot of, you could say old timers, whoever, you know, especially back in the, like the 60s, 70s, 80s and kind of up until now, um, using climbing tree stands and trying to climb like the old tale that why tell we always heard growing up is, you know, guys would climb 35 plus feet up a tree 
uh, in a climbing tree stand to just cast that scent way out and over wherever they think the deer are coming from, especially on high wind days. And, you know, talking about like, you know, you get up, get away with murder up there because of just how far that scent's kind of casting. And this is just from anecdotal, just kind of experiences of, you know, what they found right. and, and thought it worked. Uh, but it seems like it makes more and more sense. The more we talk about this as being an elevated position where you can cast that scent and it can kind of break up, quicker um over the area but also cast farther away so if there are deer within a you know 100 yards of you that scent hopefully is still going over the top of them for a good while no it makes perfect sense to me and i haven't believe it or not i have never killed a deer from a stand in my life all the whitetails i've killed I've, i've killed on foot sneaking up on them but uh i have hunted bears over bait and rule of thumb there, the farther away you can put your stand and the higher up in a tree, the more you can get away with with a bear. Easy. I mean, if you put it 100 yards away and, and 40 feet up, you could have a barn dance up there. You know, so the the idea you just put forth, especially because I, I went to school in the south and I know what you're talking about with the pines. Yeah, if you get, you get high enough off the ground, that makes perfect sense to me. That scent could be just completely kaput before it starts falling. So, yeah, definitely. So, I'll, I want to hit you with some, um, some like myths. I'll say like some like whitetail hunters myths or just deer hunters myths. Uh, one myth, I'm just, I say it as a myth. Is this something I've been told before? But I have no evidence of like does it work or not. Is the idea of rain washing away scent when you go to an area? So, say you're going to go scouting. And, or go put some trail cameras out, whatever. You're going to run into this bedding area and you're going to do it right before rain because there's going to be a rain happening and it's going to wash all my scent away. What is your professional take on that? Depends on how hard it rains. If you get a little bit of light, like I said, scent will cling to moisture. You get just a nice little slow drizzle, the kind you like to hunt in, it's not going to wash it away. But if you get a toad strangler, yeah, it will. You betcha it will. And that's even washing away that... That, and that's even washing away that ground scent? The environmental VC, uh, VOCs? Well, no, some of that's going to stay there, but it, it's going to be washing it away at time. When it quits raining, some of it will reappear. Like I said, these bacterial VOCs are around for 60 days in some cases. So, But at the time when it's raining like crazy, yeah, it'll dissipate everything because the scent will be more inclined to cling to that than it is to cling to the vegetation especially because it's moving. So so another uh, question I have is, how does, um, I asked this earlier, and we never actually answered it, I don't think. How does dry conditions and low humidity play a factor on scenting conditions for animals? Okay, good one. Because scent does cling to moisture, the more humidity you have, the better. Whether it's a dog or a deer, it's going to be able to smell better. The less makes it harder and harder significantly harder and it's you know because the dry is usually accompanied by heat but not always but still yeah the less moisture that you have in the air on the vegetation the less scent is going to be around all right so uh, i say this as a pride factor i'm going to let you keep going but like as a southerners it's very common you'd be hunting 80 plus you know, uh, percent humidity and it's, it's bluebird skies or I mean, it may be a little overcast, but just super high humidity down here, which I swear is one reason why it's so hard to get away with deer not smelling. you. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Yeah, it is. That's why, you know, you talk to your bird dog guys. They like to hunt birds on a, on a, on a day that's overcast or humid because it's better for the dogs, easier for the dogs. It's just that simple. And I forgot you guys have that kind of humidity that we have like 18% is, is the high humidity here. So oh, we'll, pa- we'll trade. <laughs> That's we'll like tra- a vacation uh, for oh, us. We will trade that in a heartbeat. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, you got a point there. Less humidity, the scent's going away faster. Just that simple. Whether it's in the air or, or it's humid enough in the morning to, you know, have dew and that. There's less, less moisture for scent molecules to cling to. All right, so so shout, shout out to all the Southerners again. You're dealing with high humidity. That that's a that's one thing you can use as a complaint card. Oh man, this deer keeps smelling because of high humidity. There you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was that was a question I've always had, and you know the dry the you know dry conditions and how that can affect a deer. Again, just dry conditions in general is just a, it's a negative impact on scent, correct? And just like this, the uh, factors yeah. of an animal yeah. smelling you in dry conditions is just harder for them to do it. Yeah. Um, simple as that. Simple as that. Perfect. Um, and then, um, oh, I had to hold on. I had another really good, uh, kind of myth question. Um, crap. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that one. Um, dang, that, that's going to bother I me. I have a question. Okay, go. So when it, when it comes to, uh, trail cameras down here, you'll have the, the cloth strap, you know, like the little, uh, belt strap that you strap the camera to the tree with. Uh, some guys don't like Can using those. Come up and smell them? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Well, the, one of the questions I yep. have is that thing is there and it's on the tree and like Michael, if he was here, I guarantee he'd ask this. Yep. <laughs> if it, he thinks that when it rains, it basically like reactivates the scent on that thing. Uh, is there anything to that you think, uh, or can there they just smell it? Well be. Yeah. If your scent is permeated to the thing, there's going, you know, saying just what he was saying. When it's dry, there's going to be less coming off of it. Period. When it's wet, it will reactivate. You know, you take a take a dirty old pair of socks and lay them out on the porch for a couple of days, they don't smell. Go in there and put some water on them and check it out. And that's what you're going to have. You know, and something else you can think about, I'm sure this has been raised because we've done a derivation on the theme with your trail cameras and, and your stands and all that. If you approach them gradually and incrementally you can habituate the deer to a little bit of smell if they come up and smell in your straps they're smelling the human and it's not scaring them off if they get used to the human smell they get used to the human sound i can't you know down here on the ranch i can't tell you how many deer i had to chase out of the corral before i shot them they're just used to us walking around and when we got our first side by side you know got a polaris I took it for a ride, right around the barn, right around the corral. And my buddy says, what are you doing? I'm habituating the deer. There's deer standing in by the haystack. I'm getting them used to the sound of this thing. You do the same thing with smell to a degree. Did you know when they're coming in like that, they're smelling humans too, uh, especially when I'm intentionally going the whole way around them. Button. Okay, this goes right, in, man. This Tom, the more you talk, the more stuff comes to mind. So, the, uh, another question I've got is the concentration of scent in, in the, the that smell molecule. So, you talked about like you know it's possible for animals to get habituated by just smelling that smell over a period of time, but the concentration of that smell, uh, the the difference between 
maybe they're smelling something that smells like it's 300 yards away versus like, oh, there's something like there's, I smell a person within 50 yards of me and kind of that yeah. reaction of that animal. Can you talk about the, the concentration levels and again, how that could play a factor uh, based off, again, just, you know, the capabilities of something smelling you and also, I guess, putting that receptor going off in their head, like, oh, there's danger here. Right. See, we don't know. Again, uh, there is uh, pretty common perception with dogs, at least, that nine molecules will set them off. That'll let them recognize a scent. We don't know. Uh, and for what you're saying, with what he said on the straps, when they come up and smell them, you haven't touched them in a while. They're smelling humans, but they're smelling it different than if you were there and they were in your scent cone. They're getting the full-blown smell of you instead of, what is this sweaty crap on this, you know, strap? So. As far as the concentration, we don't know, but if, if it's a, I can guarantee you with the strap, they'll come up and smell it. Just like he said, you can regenerate it with water and they'll still be okay. But if you get someplace and throw a breath at them, they're downwind of your breathing, they'll bolt. They know you are live and in technicolor where that strap you're not. Okay. That's a different set of, Thought we're, what we've been talking about all along is the way scent disperses. The human scent that's really important on that strap is dispersed. There's still stuff there. We don't know what it is, but it doesn't smell as bad as you smell. So they get just a little whiff of you and they're gone. They can get a big whiff of that strap and be okay because it's not you. It's not live. So. Another question I have, Tom, is you know, we've touched on temperature a little bit uh, so far in this conversation, especially when it comes to, like hotter temperatures, uh, it's kind of being associated with right. drier conditions and not necessarily being great for scenting. Uh, but I guess if it was hot and humid, that would be a positive for uh, scenting conditions, you know, when it comes to the deer dog. Would you say so or not so much? Uh, you got two factors working against each other. Humid is a plus. Hot is not. Uh, so I'd call it a draw. Okay. And then, the and then I want to give her to cold, like cooler temperatures. Now cold is all, I'll say cold down here is probably t-shirt weather for you up in Montana. <laughs> so exactly that. Yeah. So t-shirts and, and window roll down when it's 40 degrees. Oh yeah. my God. Nah, dude, give <laughs> me, I'm wearing my bibs. Yeah, give, me that, give me that park. <laughs> uh, but so we guess, you know, when I say cold, this is like gotta be kind of, I don't know. There's, there's such a wide range of like what's cold, but in cooler conditions, both, you know, if it's cooler and dry, of course, that's going to be terrible conditions, but cooler with moisture is going to be still positive conditions, but cooler is always yeah. better for scenting than hot weather. Correct. Right. Yeah. Because the scent clings longer. It stays there longer. Okay. Again, just because of molecular movement, the, the hotter it is, the faster the molecules move and the faster they leave. Uh, the cooler it is, the slower they move. Uh, we've done quite a bit of studies on it. It doesn't pertain to hunting so much, but uh, like with dope, if you package dope in Canada, for instance, and bring it down to Alabama, it's real easy to detect because it was, it was set at this molecular movement when you packaged it. All of a sudden, it's in heat, and it's going crazy. If you do it the other way around, package in Mexico and bring it to Montana, it's a little harder to detect. So, yeah, 
that applies to pretty much everything across the board. Cooler is better for scent. Now, here, here's another question for you when it comes to, uh, and again, I don't know if this has been tested, but I think it would make sense. Some things are just more easily, the, the scent of some things and some smells carry potentially farther in a higher concentration than others. And what I'm saying by this, and I'm just, I'm putting this out there more as a question. Like say like gasoline, like you get gasoline in your boots compared to just your human odor. I mean, it's still going to travel the same distance, but I mean, is there anything there when it comes to some of those more potent smells um, that could again no. carry longer or no? No, that's a thing of perception. Uh, like you said, it's, it's more concentrated. Why not? No, it smells more concentrated to us. We can really pick up on it. Gasoline that you mentioned, prime example. Gas, you, you know, stick your head in the gas can and it's like, oh, wow. We train dogs. We find so much dope in gas tanks that we train it. And it doesn't bother a dog at all. You'd think it would shut them down. Doesn't phase them. It, it, dot, they're not perceiving it the same as we are. Uh, a whole lot of things like that. What you, where you think it's a high concentration and it's almost off-putting, a deer might not even care, and he might care a whole lot. We don't know. We can't ask him. Absolutely. So, so Tom, but I, it is perception. Okay, so I guess that's one big thing is this kind of perception from a, a human standpoint. Because if you compare, like, what where does our nose and especially, you know, kind of the receptors compared to like a dog. And like we already talked about deer, like being okay. around 290, yeah, 290. We, yeah, we run that down all the time in court. So we have 5 million olfactory sensory receptors. Dogs got 220 million, roughly 40 times uh, the amount we have. A dog respirates at three times the rate that we respirate which means they're running three times the amount of air over those OSNs. Real simple math that anyone can do and no one can refute. The dog can smell 120 times better than a human, okay? That's what we call a physiological measure. Now, your deer with 297 would make him about 130 times better than a human, bare minimum. Now, that's physiological uh, measure is what we call that. And that's what we use in court testimony. Research measure, if we put all factors in favor of the dog, everything, if everything is perfect, they can smell 300,000 times better than we can. So you deer. So basically what I'm saying is the truth is someplace in between those two numbers, 120 and 300. Nobody knows. But it's a whole lot better than 120. We use that uh, just because it can't be refuted in court. And, and your deer, if we guessed at 130, that couldn't be refuted either. So, so Tom, one thing I've been wanting to talk to you about is uh, panting and how that is a negative input on scenting and for an animal to be able to scent. Because I want you to explain this, especially when it comes to dog. You see so many guys during the, the rut, say a whitetail rut, you know, have a buck chasing a doe. He's got his tongue hanging out, panting hard. You know, he's breathing hard. And it's like he doesn't have a care in the world. Well, is that the case, or did, can he just not necessarily smell that kind of case? Can you talk, just talk a little bit about panting, uh, what happens to a dog when it's he starts different. panting? You know, what you're talking about during the rut with the deer is different than what a dog does when they're panting. Uh, for the deer, chasing them with a tongue hanging, I'm sure you're familiar with Fleming, right? Where they will up, curl their upper lip and 
taste the air when they're behind the dough. Well, that puts scent molecules on those moist areas on their lip and on their tongue, which go to the roof of their mouth where the Jacobson's organ is. That is responsible for the detection of pheromones. Okay? When a deer's panting, he's trying to get more of those pheromones and confirm in his mind whether this doe is ready or not. And when a doe is pant or when a dog is panting, they use the same it's different. It, they use the same muscles to pant as they do to sniff. So it is impossible for a dog to smell anything when he's panting. Period. It's physiologically impossible. You will notice a lot of dogs, bird dogs, canines, whatever, they'll pant. Stop like this, stop and sniff. Well, they stopped panting so they can sniff. So they can still get smell going, but usually when they're panting hard, we got to pull them off. You know, and your deer panting is just trying to detect more and more of the pheromones that are coming off. Because you don't see them do it at any other time of year, right? Mm-hmm, correct. Ah. Uh, Good. Uh, I'm, see, I'm glad I brought that up to you because I, I was under the assumption. I was thinking after I heard that episode with you, I'm like, maybe that deer just can't smell while he's out there painting, but it's not necessarily painting from the, the, the running. It's just about he's trying to, you know, keep checking that dead that, that he's on top of. Um, and you'll see a dog, if they're after a, another dog that's in heat, they don't do the panting thing per se, but you'll see the tongue come out. Sample the air, and it goes up to their Jacobs, and we call it a vomero nasal organ. And that's, it's a part of the olfactory system for both animals, uh, and it is responsible for pheromone detection. So that's what's going on with the deer panting. Now, Tom, I, I feel like we're I feel like I'm missing we're missing something with this conversation. Is there anything in regards to kind of like what we've talked about, scent dispersion and everything else, kind of with our conversation so far, that we're missing and that we haven't really hit on or haven't really discussed so far, especially based off some of the research that you found, especially when it comes to canines and everything else? Well, I can't think of anything because, like I said, I haven't done any research on deer other than what I've done, you know, myself in the field by observing. Uh, I have, I could keep you here all week on dog stuff, but the deer, no, it's it's just my best guess. Somebody out there has got to do some research in depth, uh, but I have not read it, and I haven't heard anything but mostly the anecdotal stuff. So. I don't think we're missing anything. Now, maybe not so much on the deer aspect, but maybe what you found in some of these studies. I mean, what are some of those other things that maybe you have keyed in on in the canine world that maybe some people just don't realize uh, of the capabilities of some of these dogs and, again, how they're able to pick up on certain things, especially maybe like talking ground disturbance. You know, you hear about – I've heard some dogs. There's a guy we're going to interview at some point, probably in the off-season, off-season deer season, uh, who does exclusively anti-poaching tracking and and training with dogs in Africa and a couple different countries in Africa. Um, And he's talking about, you know, some of these dogs doing some super long track jobs. Um, So, I mean, so what are some of those capabilities? What are some of those things that's just kind of interesting kind of facts uh, when it comes to the capabilities of these dogs? One of my students is in uh, Grimetti, Tanzania, doing anti-poaching. They ran a track that was 14 kilometers in that African heat. They had to rotate dogs, uh, and they got the guys, you know, amongst other things. But uh, the thing I was going to say that would pertain to hunting with this, because it's becoming more and more popular, these so-called blood-tracking dogs, Okay, blood tracking, blood is considered a heavy scent 
obviously dogs in key and on and whatnot. But you will see these dogs, if you've done enough of it, they'll track an animal that's wounded that is not leaving a blood trail. How do they do that? You know, well, I know how they do it, but most folks don't, and most folks don't believe they can do it. I get a kick out of these guys that are training these blood tracking dogs, and they're always using blood and stuff. You don't need blood. What you need is a wounded animal. They give off epinephrine, which is the, the thing that the predators key in on. That's how they single out a wounded animal out of a herd. And if you spend any time behind these dogs, it is freaking amazing. We used a, a dachshund in Africa, and uh, somebody wounded a Gimsbuck. And we're on the track for 200 yards. I'm right behind the dog. And it's hotter than hell, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but the, the ground is tracked up like a barnyard. And I'm behind the dog watching what he's doing, and after 200 yards, I find a bone chip with blood on it. I'm like, well, that little rascal really is on the track. Sure enough, he was. He found him, you know, and we got him within, you know, a few minutes. But, yeah, you don't need the blood. You just need a wounded animal, and you need to get the dog on the track as quickly as possible. But even if the epinephrine has been dissipated, uh, you have that disturbance on the ground, the environmental factors that the dogs will key in on. Uh, and because that track is fresher than the other ones around it, they'll stay on it. So uh, it's kind of interesting, the, the blood tracking thing. Uh, hell, I had a dog for uh, God, 15 years that was a cow dog, half Border Collie, half Australian Shepherd, and she recovered over 60 head of game for us. Simple as pie. And the thing, like I said, I get a kick out of the guys, the gun dog guys and the blood tracking guys. You're going to train a dog how to do that. Training a dog to track is like training a fish to swim. You turn them loose, follow them, and take notes. They know what they're doing. I said, I'm using a dachshund. We use fox terriers and Jack Russells. And, uh, so, but it is a, I'm glad that the laws in that are, are loosening up on, on trailing dogs. Because we can recover a whole bunch of game that way that you wouldn't get otherwise. So yeah, they're they're fascinating. Uh, I've, I've had a couple deer um, that I've had uh, a, one specific guy track for me uh, back when I was living in Tennessee, and he had a dog that tracked. It was a he's bloodhound. That's also another thing. Maybe it miss talking about like bloodhounds compared to other oh, dogs. Ta- ta- hit on hit on that real people quick. Hate me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bloodhounds. Here we go. Bloodhounds don't have any better olfactory cap- capabilities than any other big dog. We put them at the same level, 220 million OSNs, give or take. Uh, and the whole thing with the ears scooping up scent, that actually makes some sense, but it's never been proven. Uh, the other thing with bloodhounds is they stay on a track. And this is where the bloodhound people hate me because they don't have anything else on their mind. You know, you take a canine out that's been properly trained, and he's on a track. He does not know, first of all, is he going to get to bite the guy? Second of all, is he going to get shot at? So he is thinking as he's running. And the bloodhound is not thinking. They're just doing it. Uh, Which means there's no real distraction for them. That's why they're good at what they do. But... uh, they don't have any better ability than any other big dog. It's, it's the ability to use it. And in the case of a bloodhound, there's nothing else occupying his brain, uh, so he's on it. And in the case of the canines, you have to 
uh, kind of help their motivation along sometimes. Uh, that's the name of the game. And then they are motivated to use it. One of my favorite dogs for a dope actually is a border collie. Nobody ever thinks about using them for scent of any kind, but their nose is just as good as any other dog and they are easily motivated. So they're plus they're small and compact and they can work inside a vehicle, even a subcompact a whole lot better than a hundred pound German shepherd. So yeah, there, there's all. And then you mentioned the, the anti-poaching dogs, some of the stuff they do. One that springs to mind. This will give you an idea how, how, how a dog's nose works. <clears throat> we train one, send it over there to do interdiction, which is they will do roadblocks, search vehicles for contraband. Contraband being anything to do with a gun, uh, bushmeat, ivory, rhino horn, all that stuff. And the dog's first capture, he, he, he did 200 and some uh, arrests in his career. But his very first one, they stopped a van. It's got 17 people in it, 21 pieces of luggage, and he indicated on it. So they hauled everybody out, hauled all the luggage out, did a line search. The dog indicated on a particular piece of luggage. They opened it up, and inside they found a matchbox, and inside the matchbox was one percussion cap which is illegal to possess. He found that from outside the vehicle with that many people and that much junk in it. So that's what they're capable of. Then we sent another one over there that they, we had trained them to track uh, people and they decided they had a higher purpose for him. So they kind of retrained him to track rhino because rhino was, you know, so heavily poached. They wanted to keep track of every rhino on the reserve. And they knew, you know, they knew them by number, and blah, blah. And they want to be able to find them. So they trained the dog to track them. And that was his job, was tracking Rhino. So they could find them, make sure they're okay. And he was the only dog in the world ever to do that. But uh, it just, it's real interesting, some of the stuff they're doing over there. Yeah, it's super interesting. Jay, the guy we're talking about uh, having on the offseason, uh, he tell, tore, told a story on the Gundog Yourself podcast where uh, with one of their dogs, they were trying to collar a zebra or some some one of these huge herd you know animals over there. I think I think it was a zebra. That's what's coming to mind. And they tr- shot with a trank gun on a water hole. And you know, there's like a hundred of them. They all disperse, go different directions. And the dog was able to find through all those tracks that wounded or that you know tranked uh, zebra, and then track it a couple hundred yards until where it went down and was able to recover it. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. And he talked about, yeah, like the epinephrine, you know, it being hit, you know, kind of releasing that scent. Yeah. That's what that dog's keying yeah, in on. That one, I was truly scared. Where the other ones were just spooked. Mm-hmm. That one knew he'd been hit with something and he was scared. And they can follow that like you can't believe. So, yeah, they they do some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. That, that, same, guy also, stuff. that, that same guy also talked about uh, – you know, wanting a dog that doesn't get distracted, he was saying that he'll use uh, GSPs for it sometimes, but he'll go and try it when he's looking yep. at GSPs. He'll find the ones that are the least birdie, that just don't get real fired up over birds because yeah. they don't want them getting yep. distracted on the trail, which is quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, and GSPs, there's a lot of those used in, in narcotics because they're a, they're a high-speed dog. They want to use their nose, the same old deal. You motivate them to do it, and... uh make sure they get a good reward out of it. And they're good at it, man. They're, springers are good at it too. Springer's Spaniel. They're real good at it. 
Yeah, I heard I heard you talk about Springer Spaniels in um, Beagles. Um, on Beagles. Beagles. I've, I got a Beagles story for you. The Department of Agriculture uses Beagles to inspect incoming stuff to make sure there's no contraband, no fresh fruit, no meat, no nothing that is, that is not allowed to come into the country. Maybe bring in parasites, blah, 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 blah. So they have these beagles. And I came in from Africa once, and uh, I had a bottle of chutney in my carry-on bag. If you know what chutney is, like jam. And it's factory sealed. It's got the little plastic seal over, you know, over the top of the bottle and the whole deal. And it's inside my carry-on, and, and she brought the beagle up, and it hit that right away. Boom. Indicates. And she said, what do you got? The handlers asked me, what do you got? I said, I got a bottle of chutney. And she said, well, that's, you know, it's processed food, so that's okay. The dog smelled it because it's fruit. Uh, and uh, she said, that's okay. And I'm looking at her, and she says, what? You know, me, she didn't know I was a trainer. I said, reward your dog. The dog's sitting there, you know, being good, doing what he's supposed to do. <laughs> she hasn't given him any reward at all. Come on, lady. You know, get with the program. So, <laughs> For us not to ask you about maybe some tips, if a guy did want to say start using his dog for uh, any kind of tracking purposes, yeah. maybe we both, we both got gun dog. He's got a DK and I got a small oh, monster land. Yeah, Deutsch both Kurtz puppies. GSB. Anyways, that's that's what I've got. And he's got yeah, small monster land, two German breeds. Yeah, yes, sir. Yep. Okay. And, and a monster lander. Yes, sir. Okay. And uh, all right, but I, I want maybe just to kind of close help kind of close out this episode. Talk a little bit about you know if someone has a dog at the house. What are some things that guys can start doing in regards to if they want to start using that dog for tracking purposes? You know, what are some of those things they can start doing around the yard or in the field? Uh, some some different tips that you can talk about. Or also, uh, while we're talking about this. Do you want to track a game, you mean? Yes, sir. Absolutely. To the people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm too used to the mindset of tracking people. About uh, the only thing is the stuff you've already heard, which is take – a deer tarsal gland, you know, that you shot last year, keep it in the freezer, get it out, drag it around, put the dog on it. You know, that's about all you can do because what, what really turns them on is like I said, tracking a wounded animal. They'll do that almost naturally, but you don't have a big window of opportunity there, you know? So that's really about it. Just, just lay tracks with, with the, uh, with the tarsal glands or, or shit, I don't know, bones that are still fresh, have meat on them. And I don't know. I did never had to do it. We just, just did it in the field. Uh, shoot a deer, make sure you know where it went and where it died and bring the dog up to where it was standing when it was shot. Um, then they catch on real quick. But otherwise, if you just want to, you know, do some of that, you might as well have some fun with the dog give him something to do. They'll take to it. They'll notice real quick. I know my one and only bird dog was Brittany, and I don't. I didn't know doodly about training at that time. I just thought. So I got a retrieving dummy, canvas dummy, sprayed it with pheasant scent, and I would drag that around and then get the dog out and say, go and should do it, you know. So I thought I must be doing something right. But, yeah, I don't, don't know a good way to track or train a tracking dog unless you have animals to train them on, you know? So I've got a friend in Texas because they have exotics down there. Seasons open year round on exotics. 
and he's got a dog, get this, it's half Basset Hound and half Shih Tzu, and it is a tracking machine. <laughs> because, you know, you get it's more opportunity. Shoot something, put the dog on the tail, and you know where the animal is already. Make sure the dog can, yeah, done deal. So uh, that's the best way, but not everybody has that opportunity. No, so repetition really just need you, you know, if you got a dog and you're like, hey, I want to start tracking with this thing, you know, you better start talking to a bunch of buddies. Hey, y'all shoot something, call me, because I want to I want to put the pup on it or whatever. That's, yeah, that's exactly. what I'm going to start doing. Yeah. Exactly. Get over there as quick as you can and, and turn the dog loose on it, because both of them will do it. You know, they're this natural thing for them. Absolutely. <clears throat> so. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say, Andrew, do you have anything else? That's all I got. I was going to say, Tom, that, that pretty much wraps it up. I mean, I, I'm glad we were able to kind of have this conversation. I mean, I don't know if there's anything you want to kind of leave us with or any kind of uh, lasting impressions, but we appreciate you coming on the show and kind of sharing your experience and your knowledge, especially on these topics that we've discussed so far. Well, I thank you for having me. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. Hey everybody, this is Kyle Veet, host of the Ozark Podcast, a show where we sit down with outdoorsmen of the Ozark Mountains region to talk all things hunting and fishing. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts on everything from bear hunting, to fishing for smallmouth and trout, and discussing big questions like what happened to all the quail in the southeast. If you're enjoying this show, then I know you'll enjoy the Ozark Podcast. You can listen to the show on all podcasting platforms and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.